Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books and National Security. I'm Paul, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be chatting with David Hoffman, Pulitzer Prize-winning author of The Dead Hand, contributing editor at The Washington Post, and most importantly for today, the author of The Billion Dollar Spy. The book is published by Doubleday. Hi, David, and welcome to New Books and National Security. Very excited to have you on the show today. Happy to be Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books and National Security. I'm Paul, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be chatting with David Hoffman, Pulitzer Prize-winning author of The Dead Hand, contributing editor at The Washington Post, and most importantly for today, the author of The Billion Dollar Spy. The book is published by Doubleday. Hi, David, and welcome to New Books and National Security. Very excited to have you on the show today. Happy to be here. Perhaps you could start us off with some background about yourself and how you came to writing on the topic of Cold War espionage. I spent a lot of my time as a newspaper journalist, most of my career thinking about and writing about various aspects of the Cold War. I was the Washington Post correspondent in the White House when Reagan was president. And, of course, that was completely preoccupied with the Cold War. And then uh, later I went was sent abroad by the newspaper, and I was the Moscow bureau chief when Boris Yeltsin was the president of Russia in the 1990s, just after the Cold War. And so I've spent a lot of time both before the Cold War ended and after it ended trying to puzzle out what did it mean, what happened, and how did it end. And when I was researching a book, The Dead Hand, about how the Cold War arms race came to an end, I stumbled across a declassified paper about one spy operation. It it didn't merit much in that book. It was just a half page or so. But I kept that paper, and when it came time to start a new book project, I thought, you know, I'm going to go ask some people who know about this particular operation, if it's really as interesting as this paper sounds. Because the paper was a rather summary, kind of a monograph that the CIA could use for training its agents. And that was all, you know, interesting. But I knew there had to be a bigger story than just this little paper they had declassified. So I set out by going to the CIA and essentially asking, can you help me with this? So was there previous research done on this amazing story, or or was it essentially just that document? The only thing I really had at that time was that document. It was an article that had been written for their in-house journal called Studies in Intelligence. And that journal has both a classified side and an unclassified side. So, of course, the one that I had was the unclassified one that had been released It had been released along with hundreds and hundreds of other documents about that period. And I think very few people had even noticed it. But I knew from my experience that in studies of intelligence, there's always a classified version, which is much longer. So the first thing I did was I looked at the cover and there was a name on it of the author of the article. His name was Barry Royden. He was a very experienced uh, man from the CIA. And I uh, used some of my contacts and found Barry, and I called him up and met with him. And the first thing I said to him really was, Barry, you know, this paper that you wrote for studies in intelligence, the one that's been declassified, is quite interesting. I wonder if there's a good book there. And he just gave me a biggest smile, and he said, I've been waiting years for somebody to ask me that question. (laughs) You know, he had all this sort of pent-up desire to see some Mm -hmm. person write a book about this story, which he knew a lot more. So I... uh, persuaded him to come with me to the CIA and to essentially ask them if they could declassify some of the operational records behind this operation so that I could write a book. Now, people may think, oh, it was that simple. You just went and and asked. You filled out a form and went to the other window and they gave it, right? Well, it wasn't that simple. It's never that simple. And ultimately, some of the records were declassified to me for writing the book, but it took years. And that was the first thing I sort of wanted to ask about was your sources and methods, because the details in the book 
are absolutely meticulous. Um, and you, you obviously drew extensively on the CIA's declassified reporting from its Moscow station and, and the correspondence back and forth with CIA headquarters. Uh, was that the primary or, or only source or as well as interviews or uh, how did you recreate the story so precisely? First of all, let me give everybody an admission. I did not set out to write a thriller. There aren't any car chases in this book. There's no assassinations. What I wanted to do was write a book that would take you into espionage in the way it was really conducted by the guys who did it on the streets of Moscow. And I placed a really high priority in my own thinking in recreating that for all of the difficulties as well as the fun parts. And I think the people that do this kind of work who are trained to carry out espionage operations are uh, really interesting in the way that they devote huge amounts of preparation to sometimes just a couple of minutes of activity. And it's sort of like a moonshot, you know, they don't want to have anything go wrong, um, especially when a agent's life is at risk. So I wanted to capture that sense of mission, that sense of perfection, and of course, that sense of risk and danger and the fact that stuff happens and sometimes it goes wrong. I want to capture all of that. So it's different than, say, an espionage novel where the author sort of free to create excitement at will. I wanted to catch it how it really was, the texture, the sweatiness, the tension, the stomach-turning errors, the surprises. And to do that, I started with the document. Um, after several years and a complex process, the CIA declassified to me 944 pages of uh, documents from this operation. Now, many of them were blank. Uh, many of them had sections blanked out, words blanked out. So they, they declassified through their process, of which I was not a part, and then gave them to me as an outside independent author. Using this process, I wouldn't have to have my manuscript cleared. It was not cleared by them. I kept my independence from the outside. But it meant that they could scrub those documents. And so a fair amount of uh, the pages were redacted. It was a difficult thing to work with. But the stuff they gave me was pretty interesting. And, you know, at first when I got those documents in two big manila envelopes, I was very excited. I mean, I really remember sort of my hands trembling at receiving this after waiting for a couple of years. And then obviously feeling a little let down when I realized that they had redacted so much and then mm -hmm. feeling a little excited when I found bits and pieces that they left in. But in the end, well, in the end, the documents were dry. And one of the things that CIA officers are trained is to write cables in a certain style that I think serves their purposes, which is get information across, you know, but, they're not very dramatic. They're not very emotional. And they certainly don't have a lot of color about what I was looking for. So the documents were like a skeleton of a story, but I didn't have enough to write the book based on that. I, sh I realized after my excitement abated a little bit that I was going to have to do a lot more. So the next thing I did and the critical thing that I think got me to my goal was to go find the men and women who had actually been the case officers, who had worked the street, who had been the station chiefs in Moscow, and, and find out their stories. And this isn't always easy. Many of these people work um, in a clandestine way their whole careers. Uh, you know, it's not always easy to persuade people to talk to you. But I found several of the case officers and two of the station chiefs who were interested in talking. And through their experiences, I was able to add to the facts that were in the cables and create more of a story. The last bit, and also a big part of it, is that this is a spy operation carried out on the streets of Moscow. And one of the things I wanted to know was not only what did it look like from the point of view of the CIA case officers, obviously that's important, but also what did it look like from the perspective of the spy? What was his world like? And in this case, the spy had been caught and executed, so I couldn't interview him. You know, I had to go to Moscow and try and recreate in my own mind a picture of what it was like for him. So I did research into his family history. I uh, found close family friends. I walked the walks that he walked. I walked his walk to work several times so I could understand what every day was like to him. And 
This is important in the actual smuggling out of secret documents, which I'll explain a little bit later. I wanted to know what it was like for him to walk from his office at a big secret military industrial research center to his apartment and back again, which he did every single day with secret documents in his pocket. Um, I went to the rendezvous points where the case officers met with him in parks at the Moscow Zoo on street corners, you know, near metro stations, just to get a feel for it. So those three things, the documents, um, the, the interviews with the case officer from the CIA, and my effort to get on the streets of Moscow and recreate the picture of it. That's the large part of what I did. And the, the color from all of that comes through amply uh, in the book. It really is a thrilling read. Uh, just to set the stage for the remainder of our conversation, who was Adolf Tolkachev, the billion-dollar spy of the title? What was his background and personal life like even prior to his recruitment? So Adolf Tolkachev was a very quiet, reserved fellow. You know, he wasn't flashy. He had no public persona. And he came to spying in a route that I think is really, really interesting and says a lot about the Cold War in a larger sense as well as his own motivations. Let me explain. At the outset of uh, World War II, at least in the early part of it, Hitler signed an order um, that Moscow should be destroyed from the air by the German Air Force. And he especially knew, I think, that Moscow was poorly defended from the air. You know, the Soviets had some big, giant searchlights, and they had anti-aircraft guns, but they had only very primitive radars. So on July 21st, 1941, the Germans began um, an air campaign against the city of Moscow. The city was... Uh, largely built out of wood. A lot of the buildings were made of wood. And so the incendiary bombs burned up, caused huge fires. And the population was terrified. And a lot of people ran for the subway stations, which were existed at the time. They were very deep in the ground. For safety, they were like bomb shelters. Well, one of the people running for the subways was Adolf Tolkachev. He was 14 years old on that night that the bombing began. And Hitler's bombing campaign continued for months. And it was clear that the Soviet Union, even though they had these giant searchlights and anti-aircraft guns, what they really needed was effective radar. Radar was a new technology in the 1930s, and the Soviets had only very primitive radar. In fact, they had great difficulty even telling the altitude and speed of oncoming planes. So as a result, um, the German planes got through, and they bombed uh, – Moscow all through that autumn, and it was really, really terrifying to the people there. And the Soviet leadership realized that they needed to make a really concerted effort um, to build modern radar, that it was an essential part of war. And so this became a central fact in young Tolkachev's life. He went to a vocational school that was sort of like a high school where he studied radar, electronics, the whole time. Then he was sent to a university. Um, in Kharkov, a very big and prominent technical institute where he studied radar the whole time. And after the war, he came back and he was assigned to an institute, what they call an institute, but it's really a big military research center in Moscow to build radar. And people think maybe of radar as some kind of benign little thing, you know, whizzing around on the top of a building or something. But actually, radar was the heart and soul of early warning in all uh, war systems. The Soviet Union need radar on the ground to detect oncoming planes. And increasingly, especially in the 50s, as the Cold War deepened, they needed radar in their warplanes because radar was critical if you were having a dogfight and seeing where the other planes were. So Tolkachev was completely wrapped up in this uh, search for better radar in the 1950s. Uh, he got a, a pretty good apartment in Moscow. You know, he was trained. He moved up the ladder in his laboratory. And when he was there, he met a young woman named Natasha. Natasha worked in the antenna department. She'd had a very, very rough life. Um, her mother had worked in the timber ministry in uh, Stalin's Moscow in the 1930s. She was a Communist Party member. And one night, the secret police showed up at their apartment. And her mother was arrested and taken away. 
She was accused of being a subversive and shot. Um, her father was terrified. He ran away. Uh, he hid out in a friend's apartment for a while, and then he was discovered, and he was arrested, and he was also accused and sent off to the gulag for eight years. So when this happened in 1937, Natasha was only two years old. One night, her parents just vanished. She grew up in an orphanage. She was orphaned by Stalin's purges. And after the war, her father came back from the gulag and told her what had happened, and then he died. So in 1957, Natasha, then a young woman, married Adolf Tolkachev. He was 30. She was 22. She was very um, upset and bitter about what had happened to her family. And also, if you can just imagine losing your parents at two years old and growing up in an orphanage, uh, she was bitter at the system. Maybe uh, she didn't have a lot of sense about what had happened to her mother, but when her father came back, she had enough time with him to, to appreciate how the family had been destroyed by Stalin's purges. In 1957, Adolf Tolkachev and Natasha had a reason to be a little more optimistic. When they were married, the thaw was underway, and this was the period under Khrushchev when there appeared to be a little more uh, liberalization, especially for free speech and the arts, and when people really believed that the sacrifices of the war and of Stalin's purges were all behind them, and good times, maybe better times could come in the Soviet Union. And, you know, the thaw coincided with Sputnik, with the sense of accomplishment and pride, and um, in the early 60s, in 1965, Natasha and Adolf had their only son, Oleg. But by the late 1960s, Tolkachev began to realize the thaw was over. The hopes weren't materializing. And this particularly rang true in 1968 when the Soviet Union put down the Prague Spring, when it crushed the democracy movement in Czechoslovakia. Um, there was a moment during the period when the Soviet Union did this that all the factory workers and workers in Okachov's Institute were asked one day to raise their hands to support and endorse the crushing of the Prague Spring. And it's interesting. Natasha was the only worker, the only worker in her section to raise her hand no. She was quite anti-Soviet. She was bitter. She would read the secret Samizdat manuscripts that were passed around from hand to hand. And by day, Adolf and Natasha conformed and played along. And, you know, they did everything that they should have done to be working in a secret institute and have the benefits of that. But by night at the kitchen table, um, they were increasingly angry. And Tolkachev began especially to feel angry, not only at the past and what had happened to Natasha's parents, but angry at the present because he just had to look out on the street and see there were bread lines. You couldn't buy a decent pair of shoes or jeans. The system was falling apart. And Tolkachev had read that a scientist with a top secret clearance, not unlike his own, a fellow named Andrei Sakharov, was beginning to speak out about the failures of the system. And Natasha knew that a writer, Alexander Solzhenitsyn was writing novels about this, and she was bringing them home in Samizdat. And so both of these, Sakharov and Solzhenitsyn, inspired Tolkachev to think that maybe he, maybe he could do something too. And like I say, he was a quiet fellow who worked with his hands. He wasn't a politician. He wasn't going to get up on a soapbox. He thought for a while that maybe he would uh, write some pamphlets and like become a pamphleteer or something. But he realized, I think, pretty quickly that if he did something like that, he could endanger his family. He could put his son in the same position that Natasha found herself when her parents were arrested. Oh, it's worth emphasizing here. They weren't alone. Millions of people were touched by Stalin's purges and families mm -hmm. were torn apart. Mm -hmm. But these people didn't act on their feelings. Polkachev did. He just decided something was eating away at him. He later wrote a letter to the CIA, and he complained. He said, Soviet politics, literature, and philosophy had been, quote, enmeshed for a long time in such an impassable, hypocritical demagoguery 
and ideological empty talk that he ignored all public life. So I now bring it to the threshold of what did he do? You know, but you see, <laughs> his motive was anger at the past, anger at how Natasha's family had been treated, anger at the present, anger that all the hopes for the thaw had not been fulfilled and everything was going to hell in a handbasket. And one of the most surprising early elements of the story for me is just how hard Tolkachev, as a top secret cleared researcher in the Soviet avionics establishment, had to try to get the CIA's attention. Uh, can you talk us through his initial uh, approaches to the CIA? Sure, but first let me tell you just a little story about how he got that idea. Absolutely. Because after he realized that it would not be a good idea to hand out pamphlets, he kept thinking about what to do. It's 19, this is 1976. And one day in September of 1976, he was fiddling with the dial on his shortwave radio, listening for the Voice of America. The Voice of America was jammed, but sometimes it got through, and this time it did. And he heard on a Voice of America broadcast that a Soviet fighter pilot, a man named Viktor Belenko, had flown his brand-new high-speed Soviet interceptor, an airplane called the MiG-25. He had flown it right from the middle of an airborne exercise in the Far East all the way to Japan and landed on a Japanese civilian airfield, popped up the top of the cockpit, stood up, and asked for asylum. Well, this airplane... Um, was very, very important to the United States and the West because it had never been seen before up close. In fact, it was so valuable that the United States rushed a secret team to Japan to take it apart, to learn all of its secrets. And Belenko said he wanted asylum in the United States, and at least as Tolkachev heard it on the radio, Belenko said he wanted a million dollars. Well, Tolkachev got thinking about this very seriously. And here's why. Tolkachev worked his entire life on radar. He had helped build the radar in that MiG. He knew everything that the Americans were trying to find out while they were taking it apart because he had built it. It had come from his top secret institute. He knew its capabilities and he knew its flaws. And so he thought, you know, I'm going to do what Belenko did. No, I'm not going to. He's not going to fly out of the Soviet Union. He was going to defect within. He'd strike back at the Soviet system by betraying all the secrets he had in his file drawers at work about those radars, the blueprints, the schematics that were so valuable to the Americans. So once he had decided to do that, the next question was how? I mean, you couldn't just very well send them an email. There was no email at that time. There were no digital cameras at that time. You know, all the telephones were landlines. There were no cell phones at that time. You have to realize what time this was. It was the Soviet Union. There were very few telephones, although Tolkachev had one in his, in his house. So his apartment building was located a couple hundred yards from the American embassy. Tolkachev had always gone jogging around the American embassy compound about a mile and a half. And he was very, very meticulous. He would notice where the Americans parked their cars. All the American cars in Moscow at the time, the ones driven by diplomats, had a special prefix on the license plate, D04. So he noted where the cars were, where the guard shacks were that had Soviet militiamen in them because the Soviet militia guarded the American embassy. He even learned where the Americans gassed up their cars, where they got fuel at a special gas station for, that the Americans used. So here he is. He's inspired by this Soviet fighter pilot who defected. He's looking around to see where he could contact an American, where it might be safe. And while he's thinking about that, he memorized three sentences in English. And then he wrote a note in Russian saying, I'd like to cooperate with you. He didn't really say who he was but it was an enticing note. Then on January 12th, 1977, it was about 6 p.m. on the streets of Moscow. He went to that gas station where the Americans oftentimes filled up their cars. He staked it out. He waited there for a while until he saw a car 
with the D04 license plate on the front. And he went up to the driver of the car. The driver was just finishing up. And Tokachev said in English, using the first sentence that he had memorized, are you an American? And the man said yes. And then Tokachev said, using the second sentence he had memorized, I would like to talk to you. And the man said, well, it would be difficult. And Tokachev then used the third sentence he had memorized, saying, oh, it would be difficult? And then he threw the note on the front seat of the car and turned on his heel and walked away. Well, Tokachev didn't know it, but he had just approached Bob Fulton, who was the chief of station of the CIA in Moscow, the number one top CIA man in Moscow. And Fulton, he had received notes and approaches from various Soviet citizens before, and the CIA generally was very, very worried and fearful of them because they oftentimes were traps by the KGB. So Fulton wasn't sure, but he got in his car and took the note back to the CIA station. The station is just, it's like an office, a secure office, and it's headquartered in the embassy building. Back there, he opened it up. He saw this piece of paper all folded up with tape and everything, and he read the man's note, and he sent a cable back to CIA headquarters describing what had happened and what was in the note. And I reproduced part of this cable in the opening page of the book so people can read it for themselves. But the the important thing is that the headquarters was very reluctant. You know, for a long, long time, the CIA had trouble spying in Moscow because KGB surveillance was everywhere. They were swarming on the streets. Any contact with a Russian would put that person in mortal danger. Um, so it was very difficult to find agents, and they didn't do it very often. So when this particular man approached Fulton, I think headquarters was very wary, saying, you know, it could be a trap. And Fulton knew that danger, but he was a really uh, interesting, experienced CIA operations officer. He had been served in uh, other places, made intelligence his career. This was really, this assignment to Moscow was the highlight of his career. He was in his 40s. He had spent more than 20 years in the CIA. And he had a hunch and he didn't wait for headquarters to tell him what to do. He looked at the note and the man said, if you want to talk to me, park your car on a certain street with the headlights facing out at a certain time of day. And it'll be a signal that you want to continue this. And so without waiting for headquarters, Fulton went out and parked his car like that, walked around for a bit, didn't see anybody, came back. And when he came back, there's a message from headquarters saying, don't do it. <laughs> but he had done it anyway because he had a gut feeling that maybe the man was for real. But headquarters mm -hmm. said, no, we're afraid. It's a trap. Don't do anything. So he didn't. Uh, he didn't do anything more. And the man continued to try and approach the CIA. Um, he made four more approaches in the spring of 1977, all of which were, uh, Fulton ignored under orders from headquarters, fearing he was a trap. But, of course, Adolf Tolkachev was not a trap. He was not a KGB plant. He was not a dangle. He was actually genuinely interested in giving information to the United States. And it wasn't really until the next year, 1978, when Tolkachev tried again that things really got going. The CIA became convinced he was for real. And the operation itself, the actual espionage operation, began on New Year's Day, 1979. We often hear of the acronym MICE when we're talking about human source motivations, money, ideology, coercion or compromise, and ego. These strike me as maybe a little reductionist uh, in the case of Tolkachev. Um, it seems like it was it was a blend of, of these and, and more. And he asked for, for money and indeed uh, it escalated the amounts of money he was asking for. But this seemed to me to be linked into his perceptions of, of the danger and importance of the work that he was undertaking. And then, of course, there was there was a huge ideological element, uh, which which you alluded to and described earlier. What do you think in his personality and, and history and motivations drew him not only to, to spy for the CIA, but to do it with such incredible vigor? You know, I think we could uh, separate out a couple things here. One is the question of motivations. 
Secondly, the question of what did he want? And third, the question of how he wanted to do it. So motivations is a difficult thing to define um, for a man who's not here to speak for himself. But I have talked to uh, close members of the family, and I have read the letters that he wrote to the CIA. And in those letters, Tolkachev made it pretty clear that his anger was not uh, because he didn't like Brezhnev or, you know, because his anger was deeper. His anger was about how essentially their lives were being wasted by a system that was failing. And he was definitely very, very much still upset um, by what had happened in Natasha's parents. So I think that um, of all the possible motives, this is a, a deep sort of systemic thing that he felt. He repeatedly said to the CIA, I mean, not just once, but five times, I want to do the maximum damage to the Soviet Union in the shortest possible time. And so what you see here partly is that the parts of this system, of this empire that really were evil, the bad parts of it, what had happened um, with Stalin's terror, were somehow reaching out from the past, literally, and pushing him forward and propelling him with this incredible determination. Now, on the question of what he wanted, Tolkachev did ask for a lot of money. And, you know, at one point the CIA approved uh, annual payment to him that was greater than the president's salary uh, of the president of the United States. And another time, a CIA director said, we're now giving this guy more than we've ever given any agent in history, although they only gave him half of that amount. But um, there was a lot of back and forth with the CIA about how much to pay him because he wanted all this money. But and at one point he said, I want what Belenko got. And at another point he got the CIA rather confused by saying he wanted six figures and what he really meant was six zeros with a one in front of it. You know, he wanted a million bucks. <laughs> and, of course, he didn't get that either. But here's the thing. In the end, there was nothing to spend the money on in Tolkachev's Moscow. There were shortages of food, shortages of clothing. Even had he gotten all that money, he couldn't turn around and spend it, nor he couldn't leave the country. He had a top-secret clearance. He couldn't jet off to Europe or to Las Vegas. He couldn't buy a BMW. There was nothing. In fact, one station chief joked, what does he want, to put it in a little shoebox and wiggle his toes in it? Tolkachev also wanted some very simple, I think almost remarkably small potatoes, uh, gifts for his family. I mean, here he was uh, proposing to the CIA and delivering uh, immensely valuable intelligence. He wanted things like a razor blade so he could shave, medicine for his uh, uh, wife's um, ailments. And his son, Oleg, who was a teenager at the time, was interested in Western rock music and in architectural drawing equipment because he was studying at an architectural institute. I mean, uh, you know, at one point there was a discussion of headphones. And they all seemed like actually relatively small things for a fellow who was doing so much. But the Tolkachov, these things, especially the Western rock music and the architectural drawing equipment. These were very important to him. His eyes would just light up when the CIA case officers would talk to him about what they had brought. And the CIA did provide these gifts for him at their meetings. You know, they met Tolkachov 21 times on the streets of Moscow, and they were never detected. Those 21 meetings were largely within three miles of the front door of the headquarters of the KGB. And they weren't caught. Amazing. So the third thing is how did Tolkachev want to do it? After he decided that he was going to do what Belenko did, and after he realized that because he had worked on um, that radar and knew everything about the MiG-25 radar and that he had all that information in his desk drawers, the question was how to deliver it. I mean, he couldn't very well Xerox it. You know, he couldn't sort of, uh, uh, take a digital picture of it. Those things didn't exist, right? He had to think of some means, and the CIA began to think about this with him because they too had to come up with methods. Tolkachev said, I have a plan, seven stages, 12 years. Of course, he did all that in just a couple of years. And the basic system that he told the CIA he would use, the how, 
is that he revealed to them that at his institute, there was nobody checking if he walked out of the institute and walked 20 minutes home to his apartment for lunch. And there was nobody checking when he came back. And he could take secret documents in his coat pocket, uh, obviously inside his coat pocket, and just walk out of the institute with him, take him to his apartment. Nobody was there at the lunch hour. Natasha was working. His son was at school. And he could photograph the documents there and then bring them back and put them back in the file folder in the afternoon. And nobody would think twice. This was a huge hole in the institute's security. And Tolkachov's main problem then was how to photograph them. He couldn't Xerox them. Xerox machines were locked up in Soviet times. But the CIA thought, well, we'll give him a camera and he can photograph them. So this could lead to a discussion we could have about the camera and the and the tradecraft. But the bottom line is that Tolkachov wanted a few small things for his family. Um, he wanted money as a sign of respect, but he couldn't spend it. And ultimately, he had a huge gap in the Institute of Security that he could exploit if the CIA could help him make photocopies in his book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think many readers of, of the book would go into it assuming that throughout the Cold War, the CIA would have been running tens or hundreds of human sources within the Soviet Union, their main adversary. Your book paints a much different picture. Uh, in the early days of the Tolkachev case, what was the state of the CIA's human intelligence gathering against and indeed within the Soviet Union? Well, because of this um, pervasive KGB surveillance in Moscow, it was very, very difficult for the CIA to run agents. There have been two agents run in the late 50s and early 60s who were very productive. But then all through the 60s and 70s, there was practically none. And one of the main reasons for that was the CIA itself. I had mentioned they were afraid of traps. They had a head of counterintelligence. His name was James Angleton. And Angleton uh, oftentimes uh, expressed concern at anything that they might get from Moscow, any fruits of espionage was tainted because maybe it was a plant. Maybe it was a KGB trick. And Angleton often talked about the idea that the KGB was running a master plot against the West by feeding deceptive information through spies. And some people in CIA began to call it a monster plot. But the fact is that it really put the kibosh on serious espionage for two decades. And this began to thaw out a little bit in the end of the 70s. There was one good agent who had been recruited in Colombia and then come back to Moscow and had worked very well for a year or two. But up to that point, there had been almost nobody. So the CIA had not focused a lot on tradecraft. Um, in the 60s, they had actually let the British do most of the work in Moscow because they didn't have the equipment and the experience for doing it. And by the end of the 70s, they were getting better at it. And they, for example, they were working on technology that would allow an agent to communicate and photograph documents in a way that they'd never done before. But the truth is they didn't have a lot of experience doing that in Moscow. Mm. Their tradecraft uh, in eluding the KGB's pervasive surveillance that you mentioned was also fascinating. Um, what were some of the tools and techniques that the CIA case officers deployed in communicating with Tolkachev and in enabling him to conduct uh, the espionage that he wanted to conduct, given how unique and, and valuable a source he became? Well, the first issue was photography, right? Because soon after Tolkachev um, told them about this gap and, and what he could deliver, they had to think about how do they make copies of these documents? Again, I remind people, there was no Xerox available. There was no digital camera there was no facts. There was none of the things that we take for granted today. And also, I should mention, Tolkachev wanted to have personal meetings with his CIA case officers. He didn't want to, like, leave the materials he had gotten for them in a secret, you know, fake brick or a log and have them pick it up later, what's known as a dead drop. He didn't want that. He said, if I'm going to take the risks, I want to look you guys in the eye. I want to have personal meetings. So they needed to figure out a system that they could essentially give to him, leave him alone for a few months, and then meet him again in a few months and, and get the fruits of his espionage. And at first they gave him kind of a 
second tier small camera about the size of a matchbox. It was called the Molly. It wasn't their best equipment, but they thought, you know, he's new. Let's see what he does with it. Well, the Molly was a disaster. Uh, the first time Tolkachov used it, the pictures didn't come out. So the CIA was also at this time, like I said, they were working on technology. They had developed an incredibly small miniature spy camera. It was called the Tropel, and it had a very, very tiny aperture, but it could take pictures of a whole document page. But the camera itself was small enough to fit into the fountain pen cartridge or a lipstick cartridge. And so it could be concealed very nicely in everyday things. And they gave two of them to Tolkachov for experimenting with. Unfortunately, the light in his apartment was too low um, for the kind of film they had put in the cameras, the Tropel. They were really sub-miniature spy cameras. So that didn't work out. So then, and this is already maybe April, so this is a couple months into the operation, the CIA decided, let's give them uh, something that will really work. So they gave Tolkachov a Pentax ME 35-millimeter film single-lens reflex camera. This is the kind of a camera that you would see around the neck of any tourist anywhere in the world. There were millions of them. And they gave Tolkachov a clamp that he could clamp on the back of a chair to hold the camera steady. And they gave him some film. The film looked like it was in Soviet film boxes. And it looked like Soviet film cartridges. But actually, they wound inside some high-quality Kodak film. And they gave the camera and the film to Tolkachev, and it became his greatest weapon in his effort to destroy the Soviet Union. He took hundreds and then thousands of photographs day after day after day, bringing the documents home at the lunch hour, spreading them on the kitchen table, setting up the clamp and the camera, shooting the stuff, and then bringing the rolls of film to the CIA when they would next meet with him. That, that I especially enjoyed. Um, was your description of the tension in the CIA uh, between Tolkachev's desire to produce intelligence, to keep producing uh, these photographs of these documents, uh, to meet in person, and then the Moscow station's immense concern for his safety, both of these set against the broader U.S. intelligence community's desire for this data that C.K. Sphere uh, or Tolkachev could produce. So how did Tolkachev and the CIA negotiate these tensions. So you mentioned CK sphere. That was Tolkachev's code name for most of the operation. And he was driven. He said over and over again, the same thing. I want to do the maximum damage in the minimum amount of time. And in some ways this made the CIA very happy because the documents he was copying about the radars, about the MiG 25 radar and, other radars like airborne warning and control systems and radars for uh, MiG warplanes. All this was intelligence the United States had never seen before. You know, we had a lot of methods of collecting intelligence. We had satellites in the sky. We could wiretap various Soviet telephones and so on. So it wasn't as if we weren't trying. But there's something you can get from people that, you know, things out of vaults that you can't get from satellites. And that's why this was so immensely important because the Air Force especially, which was in the middle of rebuilding from the Vietnam War and thinking about how to overcome many of the problems they had had in Vietnam, they were especially fascinated to see how Soviet radars worked so they could build countermeasures, so they could build American fighter planes that would win a, comp a dogfight with a Soviet plane. And Tolkachev's material was allowing them to do that. They sometimes overwhelmed him with questions about this and that. And uh, twice, Tolkachev actually delivered circuit boards right out of Soviet electronics, out of Soviet radars. And again, this was a big deal because Americans could look at the quality of the circuit boards and they could make a lot of judgments about the level of technology in the Soviet Union, which was still rather primitive. So when this was uh, going on, in the, you would think it would sound pretty easy, right? CIA writes the questions. The Air Force is looking over their shoulder. They send him to the spy. The spy is given the questions, and he does the work. But actually, it was far more complex than that because the meetings with the CIA were maybe twice or three times a year, and it wasn't easy. They couldn't just call him up and say, yo, Tolkachev, you know, here's what we want, right? So they have very little communications with him. They kind of got to depend on him 
to make choices. And mm-hmm. Dokachov did this um, quite well. He pulled a lot of stuff from various vaults and files and secret libraries. He continued to amaze them with it, but they had to accept what he brought. But at some point, I think when they were just getting more and more um, intoxicated and with the enormous importance of what he was giving them, the Moscow station said, guys, if we do too much of this, he might get caught. And there was a feeling that after a while, someone in Moscow was going to get get wise to the, the fact that Tokachev was signing out hundreds and hundreds of pages of documents that actually he didn't need for work. And Tokachev himself said, look, if anybody ever looks at those sign-in sheets, I'm in big trouble because I've signed out more than anybody. Well, the CIA helped him solve that problem in an ingenious way. They fabricated or, you know, faked a copy of the sign-in sheet, and they made a clean one. And so Tokachev just one day filched his own sign-in sheet and left the clean one there that showed he had only signed out one, two documents. Um, ditto the question of removing them from the building. After a while, the, the officials put in new procedures that required Tokachev to leave his building pass with the documents office so that if he had pulled something, it'd be hard for him to leave the building too. And CIA came up with a really another ingenious idea, which was let's give him a fake, let's fabricate a building pass so he'll have two. He can leave one with the documents and the other at the front desk, and then he can keep doing it. And by the way, they worked on this for a couple of years. It was ultimately successful for only a very short period of time in the summer of 1982. Um, so it, I, it's hard to say that it was a ma- it had a major impact, but it's pretty interesting to me that they worked so hard on this. And Tolkachev, uh, would get ex- samples that they were working on of his building pass, and he, and he would send it back. He'd say, come on, you don't even have the right color. And, of course, this was the day before color copiers, and, you know, it was very, very difficult to match the mm-hmm. purple swirls in the background of his building pass. Mm-hmm. And I reproduced the building pass in the, in the book if anybody wants to see it. But the point is that CIA worked really, really hard and at a very high-tech level, but the operation itself, was what I call shoe leather, right? It was about meeting the agent on the street, keeping him safe and secure. The Pentax, a very low-tech photographic solution. Everything about this operation that really worked was pretty low-tech. The CIA is running this source deep within Soviet avionics, producing literally thousands of pages of intelligence reporting this couldn't help but have an impact on the Cold War arms race. How did Tolkachev's work influence the U.S.'s approach towards its adversary in that arms race? Well, one thing you have to remember, I think it's people have long forgotten, but the Cold War frontier was in Europe. That was the place where the West and the East had a major confrontation, right? The NATO and the Warsaw Pact, um, the real fault line, of any flare-up in the Cold War was going to be the full the gap. You know, it was going to be that point at which the East and West met in Europe. And part of that confrontation was in the air. If there had been a hot war, then certainly there would have been a lot of air conflicts. Well, Tolkachev helped the West and the United States in particular understand everything about the eyes and ears of those Soviet planes. He brought out the blueprints and the schematics of how they worked. So that had there been a confrontation over Europe at, in the late Cold War, um, I think American planes would have dominated the skies. He also betrayed to the United States the designs for the Soviet Airborne Warning and Control System, AWACS. This system, which the United States already had, is extremely important in, in guiding fighter pilots and in essentially coordinating uh, a large number of pilots and planes. And Tokachev helped us crack it. We had it wired. So there's one other thing to to say, which is that the United States tactical air experience has not always been that great. It wasn't terrible in Korea, but in the Vietnam War, it was terrible. And the United States lost a lot of planes and pilots in Vietnam because we had very rigid flying um, procedures and the North Koreans using Soviet-built MiGs were much more flexible. So after Vietnam, the Air Force decided, um, and I think had to 
essentially revise everything about tactical air warfare. And they came up with a design of a plane, the F-15C, which is probably the most advanced fighter in the world. It still is, um, you know, all these years later. But in the period, <coughs> excuse me, in the period we're talking about, the inputs to the F-15 and the pilots that would fly it required a lot from to understand how Soviet planes work, how Soviet pilots work. Tolkachev was absolutely instrumental in helping us understand what it was like to be a Soviet pilot sitting in a MiG-25 or any of the other uh, planes. And he helped us understand exactly how their AWACS work, how their ground-based radars work. <coughs> Excuse me. So uh, the immense advantage we got after Vietnam was not only because of one spy, but because of everything that came together. And Tolkachev information was part of that. Now, as the Cold War is becoming perhaps a more distant memory, tensions with Russia are now really ratcheting up. There's talk of a renewed Cold War uh, emerging. Uh, does the story of the billion-dollar spy hold any lessons for human intelligence today uh, in this sphere and its in, and human intelligence's role in the broader intelligence picture? Well, I, I think that readers will come away from that thinking it does. I certainly do. But I have to say, um, every generation of intelligence officers uh, realizes how vital technology can be. And in the 70s, uh, everybody was fascinated with the new satellites that beamed digital images to the ground very quickly. Um, you know, the, our ability to scoop up phone calls and, uh, and to use technology seemed to be an American strength, and, and it was. But there are some things that satellites can't get you, you know? And if there's a, a blueprint or a schematic in a drawer, the satellite can't see it. And there are things about what's in the minds of people that you can only get by talking to other people. So today, I think we have somewhat the same situation. There's a lot of really good technology. You know, we are monitoring and listening to all kinds of calls, with people's voices between each other, um, all kinds of emails. We have satellites. There's a lot of technology. But still, at some level, at some point, you're going to need a spy to do what all that technology can't do. You're going to need a Tokachev. And I think today, you know, it would be really valuable to have a spy in North Korea, to have a spy in Iran. I'd love to have a Tokachev with ISIS. Absolutely. Well, you've been so generous with your time, but before we conclude... Perhaps you can tell us about what projects are coming up next for you, David. You know, I don't know. I'm still busy uh, a lot of sort of tying up some loose ends with this book. I, I hope to write more books. I don't have a, a big one in sight yet. I have about five ideas. And it's, uh, it's wonderful that the book's gotten a pretty good reception and people are interested in the lessons of it. So I'm still trying to talk about it, but I don't have a big project yet. Well, I, this was a, very big project indeed. So it's definitely understandable. And I thank you so very much for taking the time to uh, come on the show today, David. And uh, we hope to have you again, uh, back again soon, uh, whenever you like. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. 